The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 27. My peripheral vision, all I could sense was nothing, 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 and then the ground just coming rushing up to meet me. And I've got to tell you, Rain, that that's the only time in the whole event that I felt any sort of fear, because the rate at which the ground was coming up to meet me, I was con convinced was you know i thought that was end game i thought the shoot's not opened i'm coming down way too quickly there's no drift because it's that's the voice of my guest today squadron leader martin pert call sign purdy and if you couldn't tell by his accent he's from across the pond merry old england he's flown the harrier the Eurofighter. he has been a member of the red arrows team and then most recently the leader of the red arrows in that clip he is talking about surviving ejection in the Harrier while on a deployment to Kandahar. We dig through his career. He has a lot of nuggets of wisdom as well as just a fascinating path through aviation, which I think you'll enjoy. Before we get into the podcast with Purdy, just a few admin notes. I'd like to thank all my Patreon supporters. Again, if you're looking to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. You can support the podcast, listen ad-free for as little as $2 a month. There's also merchandise that Patreon members get with joining various levels, hats, coffee mugs, stickers, and more. So again, patreon.com backslash the Afterburn Podcast. You can find your way over there via the afterburnpodcast.com if you can't remember or know how to spell Patreon like me because it's challenging. Again, that's the afterburnpodcast.com. There's some more information about each episode that goes up there, some behind the scenes, as well as just some additional notes that might help explain some of the things we're talking about in each episode. Again, that's theafterburnpodcast.com. And finally, I'd just like to thank, again, all those who've gone over to iTunes. They've hit the five-star review button, and they've left a word or two. That helps the algorithms let people know, such as Apple, that people are listening to this and that they might want to show it to other people. So if you've got a free, like, three seconds, feel free to swing over to iTunes, leave a rating and review, even a one-word review helps out, I guess, unless it's just really bad. But thanks for listening, and let's get into the episode with Purdy. Awesome. No, I mean, it's just to have a discussion. It'd be nice to be doing this in person with a scotch, but, you know, 
Yeah, well, you got... I've transferred to gin, so yeah, okay, uh, there I, should you go. Keep, I should have probably been keeping up the side with a whiskey, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, well, Purdy, man, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Excited to talk about you and your career. Uh, and like I said, before we hit record, there's a lot to unpack here. So before you get rolling, would you tell everyone just a little bit about who you are and what you're doing and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, Rain, really good to see you again. Um, yeah, so I'm Purdy. My most recent job, and I work all the way back, was as the leader of the Red Arrows, the UK's RAF aerobatic team, which I just left back in uh, November time of 2020. Um, but leading up to that point, I've, I've had a great time. I've been in the Air Force 20 years now. I joined as a 19-year-old straight out of uh, our secondary school system, so I didn't go to college, as you guys would call it. So I don't have a did not have a degree when I joined, which put me in a brilliant space because I was young, I was stupid, I was able to get involved in all the, the things that you should do as a 19-year-old joining the Air Force and had a great time. I um, I spent some time as a FAPE uh, over in the West Coast, a place called uh, Valley, RAF Valley, where we do our advanced fast jet training in the our equivalent of the okay. C-45 for four years. And then I was posted to the Harrier. So our AVAB, which I flew for uh, five years, um, wonderful time you know we were completely mixed 50 50 squadrons with our navy and uh okay. you know on board our aircraft carriers so it was a really strange lifestyle where you spent 50 percent of your time as an air force officer and 50 percent of your time almost as a navy officer living on the boat interesting um take take yeah it was really interesting and it's clearly not what i joined up for but it was <laughs> what an exposure to yeah. uh, to, to the other side of life and um yeah i took the jet out in operations in afghanistan Got myself in trouble out there right at the end of the time on the jet. I'm sure we'll get to later on. <laughs> and um, after that time, spent a little bit of time with our own aggressor squadron here just for a few months. And at that time, I was then picked for the Red Arrow team pilot. And the way it works in our country is that you you spend time as a team pilot, first of all, three years. Worked my way through, transferred to the Eurofighter Typhoon. I had a three and a half year period in Scotland, right up in the north of Scotland. An amazing place, beautiful part of the world taking that jet on operations all around the world. And uh, and then I was lucky enough to be selected for, for the role of leader, which is a prerequisite having been in the team before, but three years from 2018, 19 and 20 to lead the team. It brings me right back here, flying a mahogany desk. <laughs> Man, that, there's so much there from just in the beginning, the fact that you were able to join the Air Force straight out of secondary school, we'd call high school, right? Mm-hmm. is really impressive. And it turns out you can still fly jets. It's it mind boggles me. You know, sometimes we, we focus so much on having a college degree and that's obviously a requirement in our air force to be an officer, which you have to be in order to be a pilot. Um, but a lot of the European nations have programs like that. So what were some of the challenges as a 19 year old rolling in to become a fighter pilot? Yeah, it's a really interesting system. I don't, I don't know whether one has benefits over the other, but for me as a 19-year-old, the, the biggest one I really had was pure imposter syndrome, which, to be honest, hasn't really left me throughout my career. <laughs> but you're a young guy, right? And you're amongst some very uh, intelligent, knowledgeable, or maybe they're just blaggers, but people who you know definitely come across as if they know what they're doing. And when you when you are that young, having not had that much worldly experience that college would probably give you a little bit more of, um, it just gives you a little bit more to fight for, to, to kind of prove yourself and stand your ground and make sure that you are credible amongst fellow officer cadets as you're going through your training program. I did find that a challenge, but I also found it a real bonus because what it does 
do is instill in you that once you get to the same level as these guys and, and it does it all levels out quite quickly is it actually gives you a whole load of confidence that you can get through pretty much anything if you put your mind to it so i really enjoyed those days it was for me my college education you know and flying training was as well um you know it's meant to be fun and that was definitely back in those days it was really good fun through <laughs> flying training um, and i treat those as my my you know first year fresher year at university was was flying Takano Takano uh, turboprops around you know the low level flying system of England it was phenomenal yeah that's a rough deal for sure someone has to do it right <laughs> yeah and they were paying me for it as well which just seemed even more even more laughable at the time that's awesome what was the mix between guys who had gone on to college and then entered the service versus ones who just straight out of secondary school it's very heavy on the college graduates. So, uh, you know, a degree, whilst it's not a prerequisite, is absolutely um, one of their sort of fundamental core values for recruiting people. And it and it was only really the lucky few like myself who who managed to get in without a college degree. So you're looking at a kind of 80-20 split, if not if not more, you know, 90-10. So I was very much in the minority and, and there were just a few of us young guys that um, – again sort of felt privileged to have been selected with not a you know without a college degree and and in that in itself gave us a a, a reasonable level of kudos but also just presented these challenges for for the for the minority that were there you know for us we have three commissioning sources you can go to the air force academy you can do rotc at any college or university for the most part or officer training school and officer training school is geared towards those who already have a college degree and I always say that one seems most appealing to me. It's the shortest training as far as officer training goes. And you could have gone to normal college and not have to worry about anything. But to me, I think that's the most that's the most difficult one because you're competing with people who have already been out in the professional world. They they have a resume versus a guy who's straight off the street or is competing with his peers in ROTC or the academy. So for you, again, coming straight out of secondary school, I imagine that had to be very competitive to go up against people who were in college and had degrees. Is there any kind of delineator or separator that made you stand apart or was it right place, right time? Or how does that work? It was a little, definitely a little bit of right place, right time. Yeah. So um, our high school system would actually grant scholarships to the air force and the air force would look to sort of try and get the hook in early to get people interested with a vested interest in them then going on to, to college. What they would occasionally do is grant a full scholarship for someone like me, for example, um, to be able to join straight after school. And if they saw enough maturity, if they saw somebody that they thought would be absolutely fine going through training, then they would absolutely pluck them out. And for me, it was an easy decision. I was only ever going to go to college to join the Air Force afterwards. So when they offered me the position and said, look, you can either go to to college and get your degree, where you can join the military now and fly, it was a no-brainer, knowing that I could probably then get my degree later on uh, once I was in the military. So I don't know about delineators, um, but certainly they saw some potential that meant I did not have to grant them with a degree before uh, before entering the, before entering okay. the service. Yeah, that, to me, that's fascinating. It's pretty cool, the fact that you can go straight out of secondary into the Air Force. And for me, man, I would love to have done that because that's all I want everyone to do is fly, right? I didn't really care about my college degree. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. But in the, <laughs> in the end, it's, it's worked out. But man, it'd be nice to just get right to it, you know? So uh, I love I that. Do feel, I do feel I missed out on the first year of college. You know, that's one regret I do have. You know, I sort of look back at buddies of mine and think, 
they had a, just such a cool time. The degree at the end of it's kind of by the by, <laughs> but the bit they really always talk about is that, that first year, you know, living in halls and just having a whale of a time. So I'm acutely aware that I missed out on those times yeah. and I've probably tried to make up for ever since. You know, but you never know how it's going to work out, right? We're the sum of our experiences and, uh, you know, going to college, there are some people who they stumble a little bit. I had a roommate and let's just say he stumbled a little bit because he had never experienced life and he experienced life to its fullest his first year. So (laughs) things had changed drastically by the time we graduated. So you never know, right? To me, it just it seemed like another three years of, of a stumbling block. I was like, what, what could go wrong in these three years to prevent me getting in the in the military? So no, I'll just I'll take you I'll take your place now and, and be done with it. Yeah, no joke. Well, then you become you go pilot training and then much like myself, I guess they loved your personality so much. They kept you as a first assignment instructor pilot. That's what I always tell myself. They just love me so much. So uh, yeah. you do that as four years you serve as an instructor pilot. Yeah, that's actually quite long. It's meant to be three years, but I um I actually was really lucky in that I was given the the demo of the solo hawk. So we we had like a little domestic solo hawk demo, which was brilliant because as a fate, you know, I'm twenty three years old, twenty two, twenty three, taking the T forty five around the UK doing uh, solo demos, and I mean it was I mean. Even now, I'm still pinching myself that I even got that gig. After you read your just brief bio and history, and then you add this in there, like <laughs> you have a career that I think most people are jealous with. Like that sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, I mean, as if it wasn't good enough being able to instruct on these, you know, the T-45 is a beautiful jet. The, the Hawk that we fly, the T-1, is it's a great little aircraft. And, um, you know, I felt really privileged to be, to be A, selected to be a, you know, to be a first assignment instructor pilot. And we call them creamies here, which is, you know, kind of an interesting concept that the thought behind it being that you think of a, a pint of milk and the best bit was always seen as the cream at the top and you skim the cream off. I don't know if I like that particularly, but um, yeah, we, we call them creamies. And uh, yeah, I got creamed off at the age of 21. And at the time, because of the geographical location of the base, it wasn't that great a deal. You know, it was an amazing privilege to have been granted. But I was a young single 21 year old, having missed out on a college degree, having missed out on the first year of college, as I was mentioning now being told that they have to stay in the most one of the most remote bases we have in the uk now i know some of the people listening and uh, certainly in the us will be laughing when i say remote because <laughs> i mean I'm, we're literally a four-hour drive from london but in our world that that's pretty remote and uh yeah it's it's a kind of unusual place and i felt i felt pretty restricted when they said no we want you to stay here for three years and just made the most of it and and absolutely the the sort of solo demo gig in my last kind of year and a half there made made up for that 10 times yeah that's awesome well people don't realize when they you know if they're giving you grief for the fact that you're remote is that that four-hour drive you're driving on the wrong side of the road the entire time so it's very challenging (laughs) it's a long time to be on the wrong side isn't it what they also don't understand is you can you can go through about three different languages in those four hours as well Like what is what is that? Is that English? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and then you get English or English. Yeah. Like, I still can't understand you, and that's that's from me living in Scotland as well. <laughs> the uh, so well, you know, like all our pilot training bases, I would argue or venture to say, and I think most people agree, they're not necessarily in the garden spots, but it really comes down to the fact, that, like the people you're with and the mission involved. Like, I mean, I wanted to go out there and just kill things and break things right off the get go, but. My time as a FAPE was definitely rewarding and I enjoyed it. And it's really cool Like later in life when you come across students who don't hate you 
and are thankful <laughs> for what you, you know, hopefully pass a few nuggets of wisdom along. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very much an advocate of what goes around comes around. And I was made aware of that really early. So I, uh, yeah, whilst I was never a Santa Claus with the marks, I remember always thinking that this guy's three years ahead of me. I'm going to see him again. And clearly he was in my weapons instructor. Like, right, remember that time? Yeah, good. Always paid dividends. Got me some slack. Well, after being a creamy, you move on and you're flying the Harrier. What uh, was like flying the Harrier? Yeah, I mean, the Harry was it's just its utility and the way certainly we used it in the UK military was phenomenal. And, and actually, it was a garden spot where it was based. So you had the best of everything. You were flying an amazing aircraft. You were an hour and a half north of London in, you know, picturesque, picture postcard kind of England villages, flying around the low level system. Uh, you were dipping in and out of exercises because it was at the time our most operational fighter. And I say fighter loosely, clearly, but, um, you know, we were, we were across to the States all the time in red flag, in and out of red flag, maple flag up in uh, Canada, clearly. And even just some of the exercise on the East coast with the U S Navy. And then you were going to spend time on the aircraft carrier. Now we had the luxury of never really, unlike your sort of fleet squadrons in the Navy, we weren't assigned to the aircraft carrier. So we would literally dip in, spend maybe a month on board at most and then dip back out again because we had duties elsewhere. So, you know, you could tick off all of these amazing things. And um, that it, it all just added up to what was an incredible five years on that fleet. Yeah. What's the rationale with having you guys bounce on and off the carrier versus just leaving that to Navy? It- yeah. So, again, it's down to resource, John. It was down to uh, we used to have Navy Harriers, which was a, diff- a completely different aircraft. And we had uh, RAF Harriers. Back in 2006, I think it was, they, they deleted the Navy version of their Harriers just for cutback reasons. And we amalgamated all that experience and brought them to what had been just Air Force Harriers, but were now, uh, were now utilized by both Air Force and Navy pilots. So they split the squadrons down, not quite 50-50, but almost. And, um, and clearly the task was still there to be able to embark upon the aircraft carriers, which is something that the Air Force squadrons had always kept ticking over as a kind of contingency uh, requirement and a contingency currency, but were never really that well versed in because the Navy were always in the background. But the utility of the Aharia meant that we could keep that currency. And then when it became the primary role, then we stepped up and and just met that kind of 50-50 bargain the other way by heading onto the aircraft carrier. And so that time frame, you joined right before 9-11. Obviously, the world plunges into contingency operations, which we've been doing nonstop since then. So your career has essentially been at war the entire time since you've been in. What was the tempo like? What was the vibe like as you're kind of leaving the instructor pilot role transition to the Harrier? Were you guys pretty busy? Were you in and out of Afghanistan and Iraq a good bit? Or what was it like? So, and that you make a really good point. When I pretty much the day I got assigned to be an instructor uh, on my fake tour was, was, around about 9-11. So I watched all my buddies go off to the front line, start pulling the trigger, you know, dropping, yeah. doing whatever they were doing in, in some very fairly fruity places. So that was another bit of a kick in the teeth um, to add to it. But yeah, clearly when I got to the Harrier Force, they were very much embarked on operations. So I think uh, I reached that fleet in 2005, 2006. And, you know, 2006 in Helmand Province in Afghanistan was a particularly fruity time. And certainly for the, yeah, 
certainly for the airborne forces and, and obviously the guys on the ground who were needing an awful lot of support. So, you know, stepped pretty much straight into the breach. I think I was the squadron I joined, one squadron, which is the oldest squadron in the Royal Air Force. They were actually away at the time. They were on operations. So kind of kind of cool that they were on ops, but again, kind of slightly dissatisfying that I was missing out on that yeah. turn of the wheel. But our Harrier force was so small, we only had uh, four squadrons at the time, that, that that wheel turned very quickly and we were sort of pretty much straight back into into that cycle. So, yeah, got to see Afghanistan, um, an amazing country, just a beautiful country for anyone who's never sort of been there. And, you know, we had the, the privilege of seeing that place from the air, but just such a disaster as to what was going on on the ground at the time. And, and, and you know, just a real shame for what is just such a, a jewel in the, in the in the Middle East there. You know, I thought the same thing about Afghanistan and the same thing in Syria around the Euphrates. You're like, man, if you just drop some jet skis in this place, I mean, it's, it is an amazing, it's amazing, spectacular views. You just don't want to be on the ground. No, you're right. Vacationville, isn't it? But yeah. I mean, you know, the Hindu Kush up in, uh, you know, the Eastern borders of Afghanistan and just some of the mountains. And, you know, I distinctly remember tanking one, uh, one, it was a day sortie actually. And it was, you know, middle of the day, beautiful blue skies. I think we were probably at about 24,000 feet and the mountain tops were only four or four or 5,000 feet <laughs> right. below us. Like, this is incredible. You know, what, right. what a country, right? But I also feel slightly vulnerable here being only yeah. 4,000 feet above ground level. And the guy in the tanker, in that KC-10, he must feel even more vulnerable. Ooh, yeah, not, not where you want to be in life. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no and that, those are the days I definitely remember thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm sitting on A, a rocket seat, and, and B, something that can get out of Dodge pretty quickly. No yeah. joke. You mentioned yeah. something that I find interesting. I've said it a good bit, and I think it's right place, right time. Life is all about timing. You just never know. But showing up to a squadron that's downrange. So for us, there are guys who just time it right. I, I, I was lucky. I showed up four months later. We were downrange. But there were guys who showed up to our squadron after we left. And that assignment cycle, there's a pretty good chance they will not deploy. And they just kind of miss it. Um, what what was your rotation, like tempo and, and period? Yeah, I'm trying to trying to hark back. I think every squadron head did out there about every 18 months. So okay. it was a pretty, you know, if you were on the squadron for three years, again, like you say, if you timed it well, as you and I would call yeah, it, right, right. you get two turns of the handle. If you ask the wives and girlfriends and partners <laughs> and stuff, that's maybe a different story. I think uh, with that particular squadron, I just got one turn of their handle, but then because our fleet was so small, the, the beauty of it was we would quite often guest with other squadrons if they needed someone to fill yeah. in or fill out. But I totally, I, I hear you, and you would you would see guys falling victim to that, and they would, you can see them, they're crawling up the walls, their squadrons away, they haven't been deployed with them because they just hit them at the wrong time. They know full well that if they get, I don't know, pulled for early promotion or a, an early weapons instructor course or you know anything. They could they could miss that cycle and and that's certainly more of an issue now that we don't have the Harrier and we've got sort of slightly more more squadrons of the same aeroplane like the Typhoon. Your first tour or turn of the handle, which I love that phrase, uh, in <laughs> Afghanistan, Helmand Province, that time period. I assume you guys were at Camp Leatherneck or I guess rather Bastion because that's the same. We were actually out of Kandahar, so okay. yeah, the, the majority of the Brit forces were out of. Um, Bastion, yeah, next to Leatherneck there. But but our Harry, in fact, all of our air stayed, uh, all our combat air stayed at Kandahar, I think just because of the collective support of of the Allied forces at the time. Okay. that's. I was in Kandahar in 2012, 
and the Marines had their hair squadron there, but they moved it over to Bastion uh, right. maybe a month or two after I left. And that's when they had the breach and going through the wall. I think they killed the Marine CO mm-hmm. and just a nasty, nasty time. So it was. And I, I remember because uh, in 2009, I think when I was last there, the uh, the Marines came in to do their recce before they then brought in the, um, uh, the rag as they they were doing at the time. So I think sort of 2010 was when the Marines then kind of backfilled uh, what we were then leaving at the time because our, our Harry was actually then taken out of service. We had the tornado in for a short period and then and then I think the Marines kind of filled that spot. But yeah, we actually had an exchange Marine guy on our Harrier squadron who ended up being uh, posted to the very same squadron who were out at uh, Bastion when they had that terrible, the terrible breach. Okay. Yeah, yeah, incredible times. And you know, we probably a bit like you, Rain. We kind of took it for granted, really. You get the odd IDF and you duck and you'd get down and then you'd get up and walk back to the boardwalk and grab a coffee, you know? And yeah. when I heard about that breach, that, you know, it was just, it was yet another occasion where you just think, there by the grace of God go I, because you do, you know, you take these things for granted. And, and I look back, certainly with a slightly more mature head on, think yeah it's still pretty fruity although it's kandahar and it's big and it's well defended you're still you're not in a nice place no and people want to kill you around there but i agree i i found myself being complacent you know the idf alarm would go off and maybe i roll out of bed maybe i don't (laughs) and about halfway through we had um she was a civilian contractor and she got hit in the shower while she was just, I mean, I've all played, I mean, you get hit by a mortar while you're taking a shower. A shower. I mean, it's a golden BB. Like that sucks. Like there's no way around that, but it, it re-caged my perspective, right? You're not in a friendly pay- place. Granted, you're not outside the wire, but they're lobbing stuff in and every now and then like wrong place, wrong time. And it's, yeah. it's all over. Yeah, and I distinctly remember doing, a, we were tasked with some recce around Kandahar. So we'd been out, you know, Helmand Province, or in fact, I think we'd even been out to the Hindu Kush. So we'd been a long way away from Kandahar. And we had some extra gas and they tasked us for some for some recce with the digital pod that we had at the time. And um, all we were doing was looking for these these dudes, you know, setting up unguided rockets, which is, you know, to all intents and purposes, it's a <laughs> firework, right? Or it's a, you know, it's a tube where yeah. they just, they light it and see where it goes and, yeah, that is it, it just it struck me how unlucky someone would be to be to be hit by something like that. But also, you know, it's completely indiscriminate as well. And and yeah, your combat duvet is never gonna never gonna help you out, is it? But we still used to just roll <laughs> under it and yeah, hope it would, hope it would prevent us. <laughs> just think skinny and maybe this will pass. But it is one of those things you can get you can get complacent, right? And I've gotten complacent. I always tell there's a story in the jet that uh, I was in the Horn of Africa, right? I was a pretty experienced guy at the time. And we launched on this alert to go support a team. We get out over the water, we get canceled. So now we're loaded down with bombs, tons of gas. We're like, well, let's do some dive glide attacks on these boats out here just as practice. And after the first roll in, we both were like, this is dumb. I can't tell what what is up, what is down, stars, boats. So we did like a lap and burner just to burn down some gas, went back and so I'm coming in, I land, I'm number two. And in my mind, right, is I'm looking at this dark abyss at the end of the runway. And I see the taxiway lights off the right-hand side, which I'm assessing is the end of the runway. Well, in fact, those taxiway lights 
were 2000 feet prior to them, the runway, you always had, you had to back taxi on the runway to get full length if you're going opposite direction. Uh, but yeah. in my mind, I'm used to these air force runways, right? There's always a long parallel taxiway that goes all the way to the end. Uh, so, I mean, obviously I'm on the binders I'm stomping on it. I end up popping tires. The only time I've ever done that in my career, but I, in my mind, I thought I was going to go off the end of the runway and it came down to complacency, right? I took for granted the fact that just because we don't talk about the basics of to and from the airspace, you know, instrument approaches, taxiing around you, that's where you can kill yourself. That's where you can break stuff and it can be just as deadly. So for me, it was that recage as an experienced guy that, Hey, you, you can mess things up pretty quickly and things can go south in the fast jet business really, really, really fast if you're not paying attention. So that was like my big kind of like recaging moment. I say that to this day, right? Cause I was an experienced guy and I think it can happen to anyone. So it's like there, those who have, and those that will, right. I do, yeah. And I, I completely agree. And, and what's, what that gives you that beauty of experience and you'll have seen this, you know, and you think back to IP upgrades, for example, where, where do guys usually fall down on an IP upgrade? Right, it's it's like, either, you know, they can't debrief properly and can't get to the root cause of something that's happened tactically or they just screw up something so infinitesimally easy, like the domestic in and out of the airfield. <laughs> and you're like, you meant to be an IP here and you, you can't even do that. And and that, I, I always say, you know, if, if anyone's been through that route and struggled, that's exactly what it's like in real life. It's exactly what it's like on ops. You know, you're trying to land yourself back in exactly as you've perfectly described into the black hole effect you know, you've been on ops for seven hours, eight hours. You haven't slept in 14 hours. You, you've got to, you've got to be able to do this easy stuff that you've got to do world-class basics before you can even think about the advanced stuff. Right. And that's, I was talking to some ROTC cadets last week, in fact, right. And, you know, pilot training is all the, the basics, right. From point A of the runway to point B, the airspace doing some maneuvers and back. That's all you focus on. When you get to the fighter, like you just, you barely even touch on that, right? You just, Hey, we're going to do a radar trail recovery. There's so much that goes into that radar trail recovery, but you just have to know how to do it. Right. And it's a building block approach, but this stuff, it can kill you really quick. Yeah. One of my, um, one of my old COs, he, he, it was the best quote he'd ever, it was the best piece of advice I've ever had. And he said, a damn good scare is worth 10 bits of advice. I was like, yeah, I, I can see exactly where you go with that. having learned the hard way. Yeah. Cause I'm not very smart. And unfortunately you can tell me, Hey, don't do that. Don't do that. I'll still do it. And I'm like, ah, I have to mess it up. Like I'm just not smart. I have to like learn the hard you gotta, way, you know, <laughs> you got to touch the radiator before you actually believe it's hot. It said the science said it was hot, but I didn't believe it. So, you know, uh, if only I was a little smarter one day, maybe one day we're all, we're all aspiring to yeah, those right. days. Stay worry. <laughs> so flying around Afghanistan in the Harrier, what was, what was the loadout? What was the typical mission set? I assume it was close air support. <laughs> It was. It was always close air support. We filled a lot of the uh, the GCAS role, so the sort of uh, high readiness alert on on the ground at Kandahar, ready to just sprint, get out to the jets, get to wherever the, tr the troops were in contact. So you know, spent a lot of time in kit waiting to go, which is um, before I knew it, you know, the kind of perfect lead into quick reaction alert on the typhoon. And then the loadout for us, we would go out with. Um, yeah, the Harry was okay. It had a, a pretty decent loadout as far as a small jet like that goes. You know, we were struggling a little bit with the heat, especially in the middle of the summer with that jet. 
but you could carry, uh, or we would carry, two Payway 4s, GBU-54s, and then we would also generally have two rocket pods with, um, I'm just trying to think, 70, 70 okay. rockets, 70 mil CRV-7 rockets. And then uh, we'd usually have the sniper pod and usually a recce pod as well, so we could do some um, short notice recce tasking. Okay. I didn't realize I was talking to some Marine here guys and I did not realize this fact, but he was describing landing on the boat with the, the water tank that it's about like five minutes you have to get on the ground when you're doing the vertical takeoff and landing. Is, am I getting that right? Cause yeah, again, I mean, it, it's, it sounded yeah. insane to me when he was describing this, I was like, well, what if this? And I mean, at some point, that's it it's gonna run out (laughs) and you're in (laughs) it sounds so archaic doesn't it i mean it sounds so archaic that you've got an airplane that's got a i think it's a 300 liter tank in the on the spine which you have to fill with mineral water because it can't be naturally you know it's got to be (laughs) deionized um and then and then they you know so you have to have your own special truck that comes around and pumps in this water and then they inject that into the nozzles whenever you're at, at very high um, uh, design, you know, above design RPM. So usually when either you're hovering or hot and high temperatures. And uh, and that just cools the engine to give you an extra, I think it's actually only three minutes thinking back. And uh, Yeah, five minutes it, is it, an eternity, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I tell you what, three minutes alongside a boat, especially if you're having a bit of a flail or... You know, it's on the North Sea or, you know, out in the Atlantic there, and it's it's pitching two or three degrees. By the time you've started to decelerate, it's a hot day, the water starts running at around about 80 knots, I think it was. You, you transition to the hover. You know, that's a minute and a half gone already. Yeah. So you've got kind of 90 <laughs> seconds to get this thing on the deck. Otherwise, it's coming down. And depending on the temperature, it will, it will you know, as soon as the water runs out, it's just coming down. Now, depending on the temperature, it depends on how quickly it's coming down and obviously depending on your weight. So, uh, yeah, there's been plenty of guys who've literally just got, they shoulder it over the aircraft carrier. They're they're above a deck and then they're coming down, but they've got no control. You know, the, the throttle's parked and they're, and they're just coming down. Like, right, I'll just, I'll ride this in basically. <laughs> How can I not sign up for that? That sounds absolutely <laughs> terrible. The uh, yeah, he was describing this to him. I'm like, that that doesn't sound smart at all. Why would we do that? I, I want to know how, how much do you think we paid. How much do you think you paid to have mineral water deionized <laughs> shipped into Afghanistan? Like, how much was that markup? Who's the guy who's driving that thing through? You know, from the <laughs> Euphrates out west. Or, yeah. So, um, yeah, incredible times, and 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 it's great for focusing the mind. And plenty of people have had a scare in the aircraft, including myself, uh, for other reasons. So, yeah, the Harry had some real vices about her, and and uh, and I think that's why so many people talk about it with affection, certainly in our military. And and now it's out of service in the UK. You know, it's a historical beast, but but it's certainly spoken about with um, with with a lot of affection for those who who are still here. I mean, I watched. I think it's like True Lies movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger as a kid, you know, and he's got the Harrier and just like blasting like that plane looks awesome, you know. That was the only reason I wanted to fly it for seeing <laughs> Arnie and Art Malik hanging off the back of it. Right. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. We mentioned scares, so you you did have a pretty good scare in the Harrier. Um, which I know like when I first met you, you told me about, and again, it's one of those things where, you know, things can go sideways real quick in this business and you have to respect it. And the thing is, if you think it can't happen to you, then you're definitely the next person it's going to happen to. 
So you, can you tell me a little bit about your scare and what went into that in the lead up? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, Rain. And and I will start off by saying, I, you've hit the nail on the head. It um, it can go wrong so quickly, and the accident that I had changed me ever more, and it changed me for the better. And I I'm always upfront with people who either ask me about it or have heard rumors, or you know, were you that guy who? Yeah come here and I'll tell you a story about it because because it needed to be told at the time and, and I'll come to that in a moment. But yeah, so the Harry had a few vices. One of the problems we had at the time was we had this high turnover of op cycles. We had to get guys to the front line very quickly. We had to get them out onto operations very quickly. And uh, what it meant was that the training that we did in the UK was adequate, but you could always have more. And I guess that's the same for any place that you go. Yeah. And when I got to the Harrier, what we were really suffering with was um, being able to load out the jets in a representative fit to get guys hands and stick time to fly it at its full, you know, its max, um, its max all up weight. So I had no experience of flying its max all up weight, which was kind of the first hole in the, the Swiss cheese model. We were out on a, about a four hour mission. It wasn't a very long one. And we had loads of fuel to start with. So we actually had to orbit in the overhead at Kandahar at 20,000 feet. But actually what happened was we were orbiting for probably about an hour over Kandahar and the the tempo of operations was picking up and there was an awful lot of stuff coming into Kandahar, loads of cargo aircraft, loads of uh, drones coming in, UAVs, and loads of combat aircraft getting airborne. So it became pretty busy. So we were sort of chimping in saying, listen, we need to get down in about 15 minutes. We'll be out of gas. We'll be in go. Anyway, cut a long story short we got to pretty much complete fumes. So having had bucket loads of gas, we then got to fumes <laughs> you know, because there was no way we could get in. So we started really hollering on the radio. We had some geographical restrictions about where we could fly. So we literally were just in the overhead because of some drone activity. And the guy on the radio, he was pretty busy. He was a young air traffic controller. as me as a pretty young and experienced Harrier guy. And he screams, you guys need to get on the deck now. Otherwise you're going to be you're going to be balked for another 15 minutes. Like, right, we'll get down. Down we went. My wingman went first because he was the shortest on gas. And uh, I'd just been upgraded, but I still only had about, I don't know, 150 hours on the jet. So not an awful lot, but that was a kind of operational tempo. He went down first and we used to fly these, what we call tesseral approaches, very steep dives towards the airfield to, to counter the surface to air missile threat. And as he was doing this, his missile warning system went off, fired a whole bunch of flares out the back. Oh. Now, at the time, we we knew that things could spark that system off, but it was pretty rare in the, the, the where he was that there would have been any sort of false alarm. So, it, you know, we both took it pretty credibly and we were down pretty low by that stage. So both of our attention was focused on looking outside, very steep approach, high all up mass. You can kind of see where it's going here, but bringing the thing in and unfortunately just both of us did it flared at exactly the wrong point with a bit of an issue with the flaps but only a minor issue but i mean it was certainly a contributory contributory factor he got away with it and i just pancaked onto the runway at a very high angle of attack now there was a bunch of things that went into this there was distraction from the missile warner distraction from the guy who was sort of hollering at us to get on the deck the fact that we were low on fuel the fact that i had low hours but in essence, it was my screw up, you know, and I was always very honest about that in the report. And 
it was to all intents and purposes a 90% serviceable aircraft. It was, it was doing enough to get me on the deck, but what it meant was landed on tire exploded, outrigger blew off, ruptured the fuel tank. I'm still riding along the deck here and, and guys will probably have seen this guys and girls might've seen the video on YouTube. It went sort of around the world and, uh, sliding along the deck and I was going to stick with it. I thought this is fine. Just stay in the jet. It'll just yeah. come sliding to a halt. I'll step over the side. I'll definitely be having a bit of a wrist slap, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm alive. And then unfortunately the flames of the ruptured fuel tank came up inside the cockpit Dang. and I could feel my eyebrows sort of burning away. And at that stage, I mean, you know what it's like, Rain. We, you think about an ejection decision, but there was no decision. It was, I'm off, I'm out of here. Yeah. And there was, there was, there was no, no second thought. So out I went, uh, and then the kind of rest, the rest was history. The jet came sliding to a halt. It burnt out pretty quickly. So I'm kind of glad in a way that I didn't stick with it because I'm not convinced I'd have been able to get out the side in no way before it really sparked off. And clearly I still had, well, I still had a full complement of uh, 500 pound bombs on board yeah. and I had most, you know, most of the rockets there. So it, the thing could have gone off at any stage, but the hindsight that it gave me, it changed me as an aviator forever. And I don't think I would have got to where I got to in my career, having not had that opportunity, you know, and yeah, it's a huge wake up call. Don't get me wrong, but I think there's a whole bunch of other people out there who've learned from my experience. And I, I would damn well hope they have because it, it set off a whole train of wheels in motion about learning from that mistake and has definitely brought me to a different place. You know, one, there's a lot to unpack there. The fact that we're just talking about that openly. I think a lot of people who are not in this business would maybe shy away from sharing those details, right? But as a, as a fighter pilot, that's inherent in the culture as a pilot that's inherent in the culture is owning your mistakes, sharing your mistakes. So not only are you getting better and learning from it, but everyone else is doing the same. Loco, who's the Raptor demo guy, he's one I always say, the first thing out of his word or his mouth every time you see him after flying a sortie, it's what he messed up, right? He's just owning it and he's trying to make other people better. He's like, oh, I did this. Like it might not be, it might not be applicable to you in jet A, B or C, but for him it was, and maybe there's something to glean from it. So I think that that's so important. And as fact is playing, I have a secret just doesn't work in this business and that's not how you get better. So Thank God you made it out. And I can't imagine what that was like, but having that rocket motor strapped to you is a, is a, is a pretty nice deal. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, you know, the, uh, the rocket motor or any of the, the sort of experience that went into it. But what was really telling is that I, I told the story as soon as I could, you know, I went back to home base. Um, there's always a debrief process as you well know, but uh, you know, I, I made a point of standing up in front of the entire Harrier fraternity, which is kind of small at the time anyway, right? But um, I stood up, told the story much as I've told you. We had a bit of video analysis as well, told them what I was thinking, told them, you know, where my focus was being, you know, diverted, showed them the approach. And what was really telling is that uh, I had, I don't know, eight, nine of the most experienced guys come up tap me on the shoulder and just say to me, dude, you were the one who got unlucky. It's us that got lucky because we flew exactly the same profile as you a million times. And we knew that we got away with it and you were just the unlucky one. And it made me feel better. But what it also did was it just focused everyone into thinking, 
do we need to be flying these steep approaches? Is the threat that great that we need to be now at the edge of the aircraft's performance, which we were doing at the time? And it just set off a whole train of you know wheels in motion to learn from that and and apply. So, yeah, I think you were going to ask, do I remember it? Is that is that what you were? Yeah, it was. And also, so I do have a question with it, but I would say you know the difference between my story and yours with the landing is maybe ten knots was a difference. Maybe that was a one piece that got blocked where my story didn't end with me riding a a rocket ship out of that jet. You know, so again, it's it's small stuff. And anyone who says they haven't been there they're lying. Right. You know I mean? It, it's just one piece of the Swiss cheese model. Something blocked that the last error that would just align, line all the holes and end in, you know, tragedy. Yeah. yeah. And I used to be that guy who sat at the back of the brief and go, how did this happen to this guy who is, you know, I know he's a really good, a really good dude and a, a very talented pilot. How has he got into this situation? And then it's only when you're there yourself that you realize as you've very articulately described it can just bang yeah just any, like you know in a second so i've i have i don't i've never actually talked to anyone who is ejected you're the first one i've read some of the accident reports where guys are talking about their experience afterwards and they're guys who don't remember anything from a few seconds to you know a minute before pulling the handle and then they don't really remember anything until about you know the fire department's showing up were you pretty aware of everything that was happening as you were going up the rails and you probably got one swing under the parachute, huh? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like a, how can I describe this? Yeah. It's all there. I mean, it's like an iMovie just playing over and over. Uh, you know, it's, it's incredible because when I look back upon it, the fact that I, A, remained conscious and B, lucid enough to take in what was happening. So I remember what had actually happened was I had my hand on the handle anyway, <clears throat> because the Harriers, as you remember, has got outrigger wheels, little, these ridiculous little flappy <laughs> wheels. And we knew from corporate experience that if those go, um, the thing can dig in and then it will flip very quickly. So my main worry was that because the, I knew the wheels had come off and I was sliding down the runway, that if one of these outriggers dug in, the thing was going to flip and I needed to be ready to go if that was going to happen. So my hand was already on the hand already and then the fire started. So whilst I don't remember physically pulling the handle, what I distinctly remember is the pause, which you'll have heard people talk about. There's a, there is a pause. Now it's 0.4 of a second, but it's long enough to make you think that it's not going to happen. And just as you think it's not going to happen, boom, your whole world lights up. Um, there's a huge flash. Uh, I somehow managed to keep either my eyes open or open them very quickly because it was like a movie. I watched the aircraft, what I thought was descending away from me, but clearly I was on the, the jet was on the ground already. So it was me ascending up the rocket or up the, up the gun. Then I remember the sort of slight jolt as I left the aircraft and you, then the rocket pack fired, which was another flash of light. And I just remember watching this jet fall away from me in the view, and it was sliding down the runway at the same time, thinking, is this, is this some sort of dream? You know, and everything just slowed down. And then it gets really violent because then the seat, you know, I got to, it's about 180 feet, 200 feet high. And, uh, and then I got one swing under the chute. In our military, the um, the thing they teach you to do first is to go for the life stole. So we've got, we've got like a May West jacket that we wear that, that's got an inflatable stole. Yep. So our drills is to just pull. If it's a low-level ejection, get to that and pull it because it will inflate and support your neck. So I went for it, and I actually missed it. And I remember I missed it. had enough time to think, 
oh god i've missed it and then actually had time to pull it again and wow just, and it's amazing the things you remember and um and it inflated and it and it blew up around my neck and the problem with it is it's so inflated that you actually can't put your neck down which is clearly the idea of it right but out of my peripheral vision all i could sense was nothing 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 and then the ground just coming rushing up to meet me and i've got to tell you rain that that's the only time in the whole event that i felt any sort of fear because the rate at which the ground was coming up to meet me i was convinced was you know i thought that was end game i thought the shoot's not opened i'm coming down way too quickly there's no drift because it's kandahar and it's the middle of the day and there's no wind so all this stuff they teach about parachute rolls dude oh. i landed ankles first Point two of a second, my rear end hit the tarmac, and um, and that was it. I was a crumpled mess on the floor, and and uh, I remember the jet just sliding off into the distance, and it burnt out almost straight away. And okay. just that was the moment that I I thought I'm I'm in some serious trouble here, uh, but also I need to make sure that I'm all right because you know you hear the stories of guys with their backs. I just lay on my back, and I knew I was in a safe place. I actually, as fortune would have it, ejected. 100 meters away from the Roll 3 hospital at Kandahar. So, uh, yeah. you know, I couldn't have ejected in a better place by by virtue. And the best bit about it, which I will never forget, and I've actually made contact with this guy since, is that just opposite where I'd banged out um, was the, uh, it was the US Army Kiowa detachment. Okay. So the little Kiowa helicopters. Yep. And one of their maintenance guys, he was uh, just a young guy, probably 20, if that, um, you know, probably the the lowest rank that you get in the U.S. Army. I, forgive me, I don't know your ranks, but you know our private equivalent. And he came running over, and blessed him. You know, he took one look at me, and I looked like Doctor Emmett Brown. My hair was <laughs> steaming away, and my eyebrows were singed to. <laughs> and he just he just he leant over me, and he and he looked at me, and I think he was obviously pretty shocked at what he'd seen, and he went. Dude, your eyebrows. <laughs> You've nailed it, mate. You've absolutely nailed it. Yeah, Because he couldn't have put me at more ease. You know, I just knew then that I was I was going to be all right. And uh, and then obviously everything else plays out. So, yeah, I can remember the whole thing. And, yeah, it's, I mean, what an incredible piece of engineering an ejection seat is. Because that, that was, I've timed it on the video. It's like four and a half seconds between out and back on the deck again. It's It's insanely quick. That's wild. Yeah, I know Mark Baker. They have they have an Instagram page, right? And it, it, every time someone ejects around the world, they throw up another number for it. And I think they're mid four thousands is the number of guys and gals that have been saved by their oh, season. I think, it's more, I think it's almost double that. I think is it's it? seven and a half. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's I'm, wild. I'm eject ejecty uh, five eight six nine. So um, they sort of send you your your membership number, which is the the number of ejection. <laughs> that you are in the sequence do you get anything special do you get a tie or a watch or anything you get a tie and then you have the option to buy a watch yeah oh man i that's phenomenal i'm glad you made it out obviously and thanks man like you said the the lessons learned from there 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 are a lot that can go into it and like i said someone who says they have never been there or they'll never be there there it's right around the corner waiting for them so especially in this business yeah, they've got to just take it easy. Listen to what people who've been through this are telling you, because it, you've just got to be on your guard the whole time. And there we were, what seemed like a simple event—the landing at the end of a, an operational sortie over, over Badlands—and 
you know, it's a shame that actually that's the written off aircraft down to, you know, something so simple. Whereas, you know, if it had been something else, you know, if it'd been enemy fire or something, it may, may be a little different, but yeah. And I'm, I've always been more than happy to tell that story. And, and I brought it up a lot during my time in the Reds um, because there was an awful lot to learn from it. And there still is, you know, it doesn't matter that it's a Harrier and it was a different type of approach and we were using nozzles. There's so much to take out of it. So. Yeah. Every plane has its thing, right. And we do something silly or kind of questionable or something that could lead down that path and whatever platform you're flying, no doubt. Yeah. So you get back, you get back in the jet fairly quickly, right? Yeah. We had a mandatory three month kind of period of leave. I did, you know, I broke my back. So um, yeah. I was pretty lucky. It was very stable as far as a fracture goes, but it, it was broken. So there's a period of recuperation to, to make sure that it's not going to go the wrong way. And uh, after three months, I was just itching to get back in that cockpit. And, and it was a great day when I finally got back in our two seater with a good buddy of mine in the back. I think he was a bit nervous because he was worried about my sort of reaction on getting back in the jet. Yeah. I've been in the simulator a number of times, right. you know, during those three months. Um, and then we went flying together. And obviously the Harrier had about eight different types of closed pattern you can fly because of the various sort of nozzle settings you could do. And on the last one, we were coming into this tiny little short strip. It's probably, uh, I think it's about 150 feet long. So really short strip. So we're doing this rolling vertical landing landing in at 50 knots and you pretty much come to a stop and at the end of this 150 foot uh, runway is just grass you know it just goes into lovely english countryside and we landed on and through absolutely no fault of my own um one of the tires popped and, and that happened you know right. the harrier it used to happen reasonably regularly just because of the way it, it landed on and one of the one of the main wheel tires popped and that means you've got no braking because the anti-skids turned itself off so we're sort of careering towards this grass. I'm pressing the brakes. He's pressing the brakes in the back. We've got the nozzles fully sort of as far forward as we'll go, powered up against it, trying to kind of reverse thrust it. And I just remember thinking, not on my first trip back. No way. And <laughs> <laughs> we came to a stop, you know, just kind of teetered over the edge of the grass and, and out we stepped. But uh, yeah, that was that was quite a trip back in the jet. The, uh, you probably needed three months for your eyebrows to grow back because I think if you walked in any fighter squadron with no eyebrows, like that'd be an instant like hostile renaming. <laughs> you know? Well, we wanted to adopt the young uh, U.S. Army guy who came up with that because I mean that made it into all the books and all the I mean, what a quote. <laughs> your eyebrows. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Oh, I can relate to. I've had a couple brake failures. It is not a comfortable feeling when you're just cruising towards the end of the runway. At one place I had a cable. One place I did not. You know and Fortunately, got oh, it stopped, but it's that is not where you want to be in life. You're helpless, aren't you? You're just yeah. so helpless. Like oh, I'm pressing as hard. You know, my feet are going through the front, yeah. combing. <laughs> it is not where you want to be. So you uh, you stay in the Harrier for a little bit more, and then eventually transition to, to the Reds. Yeah. So um, it was a it was a strange period in the UK at that time. We the Harrier came out of Afghanistan in 2010 at the beginning of 2010. And we underwent a change of government in 2010, and fairly shortly thereafter, there was a huge defence review. And unfortunately, the Harrier was taken out of service at the end of 2010, December 2010. So I had a year, about a year, flying the jet again before they removed it from service. Which, you know, the time was was crippling. Really, it was a really, it was still a, a great CAS platform, great at what it did. 
So we were pretty upset, but I was quite lucky. I was posted to our aggressor squadron, which were only flying Hawk T1s, and they, they still exist. Um, but I was only there for four four months or so because I already had my application in for the Reds. And, okay. And, yeah, went through the selection process and, and, and got in on that first go and, you know, lived the life thereafter for, for three years or so as a, as a team pilot on the Reds, 2012 to 2011 to 2014. I'm sure everyone's familiar with the Reds, but if they're not, you tend to fly a lot of planes together really close together, which is kind of wild. What was it like just being a team member on the Reds? What was that? Uh, that flying's got to be different. Yeah, totally different, you know, and I, I was blessed in that I'd flown the, the Hawk a lot for my fake time. So I knew the jet inside out. And, and in the UK, we use uh, the Hawk, which is, is a training aircraft. Um, but the reason we use it is because, well, A, it's cheap, but B, it's really reliable. And it's great for a nine plane demo to be able to maintain it easily and get it around the world. So, um, yeah, I had a fantastic time. We use the Red Arrows in the UK as not only a, an entertainment tool for the crowds, but we also use it as a bit of a diplomatic tool. And because the UK is so small, we would often be found not just displaying in the UK. So it was a perfect way to travel, but to travel to the places you want to go, right? So we were always around Europe. Uh, we were in and out of Europe. You know, you can get from where we live here to Europe in an hour, flight time, right. you're in Paris. And um, yeah, three years of really busy, really uh, high intensity flying as far as both time in cockpit, but also, you know, the, the type of flying we were doing. And it was nonstop. You know, it was three years of three, four, five sorties a day, five or six days a week, pretty much from start to finish. Incredible time. Yeah, nonstop. I'm going to jump across your Typhoon career because <clears throat> you came back and you led the Red Arrows. And part of that was doing the North America tour, which when was the last time the Red Arrows jumped across the pond? Yeah, and that was fantastic. You know, A, to be invited back to lead the team, that was just a huge privilege, you know, and something I had clearly applied for, but never really believed I would get the chance to do. Um, and also a really crucial time for the Red Arrows because uh, we had the anniversary of the Royal Air Force, the centenary, which was a big event this side of the pond. And then they announced that we were going to take the Red Arrows on tour across across the Atlantic to, to Canada and the US. And, you know, that's where we first met when we were doing the scoping for that. And, um, you know, that was an enormous task for us. And we just needed to make sure we did it right. Uh, we needed to make sure that we were doing it in an appropriate manner for, for your airshow audience, you know, and, and getting to see the people who, A, wanted to see us without stepping on the toes of, of clearly the domestic teams. You know, we're, compl we're complete guests and it, and it was it was such an incredible time. I enjoyed most the planning and then the getting to and from. Don't get me wrong. The time right. and country was amazing, but yeah. it was just, it was the scale of the challenge and, and sort of meeting that scale was, was actually for me the most professionally rewarding. Because that following along on Instagram, your post, I remember when you guys were going back home and some of the posts you made, um, that looked like quite a journey from getting just, I mean, getting that plane across the pond. You're not hitting a tanker. So there's a lot of logistics and moving parts that go into it. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Of course. Yeah. So as I mentioned, this is a, uh, sorry, a training aircraft. That's what it's designed to do. It, it's got two hour long uh, endurance time and we're only doing 0 0.7, 0 0.75 max. So you can't get very far in this thing. You can get maybe 800 nautical miles, which meant, and we can't air to air refuel, as you said. So we couldn't get across the pond in one hop. So we had to we had to jump 
and jumping via some of those places is actually pretty hairy if you don't time it well. So we left the UK and the UK and sort of north uh, northern hemisphere summer, which was fine. Iceland, Greenland, the northern skirmishes of Canada, you know, they're they're okay in summer. But as soon as you hit October 1st, those places just kind of freeze over and they're pretty inhospitable. And we did, we knew that, we knew we needed to get out of country pretty quickly to get back before any of those big, big systems came through. And um, so we left Huntington Beach, was the last air show on the 3rd of October. We left a few days later, took us four days to even get to Canada, the way we were sort of traveling uh-huh. across. And then it was, we got stuck. We got stuck in Greenland and we hit a system. We hit minus uh, 20 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Forgive me. It sounds terrible. Pretty cold. Yeah, it sounds you know. like hell on earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of was. I mean, beautiful country, but to be stuck there. And the jets, you know, you leave a jet outside in those temperatures, you, you're going to have all sorts of problems. But, I mean, a great challenge in, you know, usual military fashion. We, we kind of stood up and a bit of stiff British upper lip and kind of got on and, and solved the problem. For me, that was that was the most professionally rewarding was was kind of getting to and from and the challenges it presented. And then once we were in country in in the continent, we could really just almost let our hair down a little bit and enjoy the ride because that was almost back to kind of our normal bounce around, do the displays, you know, meet 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 the guys and girls on the ground and and just really ingratiate ourselves to the very knowledgeable US airshow audience because. Every single place we went, we were welcomed so warmly, you know, and I, I keep saying, I, you know, that will be the memory that lives with me is just how welcoming everyone was and actually how knowledgeable they were. Now, I don't care whether they just read up about us two minutes before or actually have spent, you know, an air show career watching various display acts, but just to be part of that whole scene was, was great. Was it tougher being the leader or being a team member? It was tougher being leader, but that meant that you were then rewarded with bigger prizes. Um, when you achieved what you'd set out to do as a team pilot, you felt that kind of collective cheer. When you achieve it as the leader, and then you're able to stand back and just kind of watch the rest of the guys revel in that moment, whatever it happens to be, you know, a high profile fly past ever. Uh, DC or the Golden Gate Bridge or, you know, the Queen over here in London. And you can just sort of stand back and think, you know, that's almost more of a reward when you're when you're up the front. But clearly there's 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 payment for it, which is sweat, blood and tears in the yeah. cockpit as you're fighting to get to the right place at the right time. And you I mean, you guys did some incredible flyovers while you were the leader. I know you've met the Queen. What was that like? That's that's a pretty significant am- emotional event i would imagine <laughs> yeah it's incredible because actually most people uh i've got to say most people from the u.s always ask if we've met the queen and and <laughs> and actually what that does is just it shows us how well known she is around the world and, and um doesn't really matter what you think of her you know she's obviously very famous and the constitution is a big part of our history right yeah. and um but it's huge for us as well it was massive so when we went down to windsor castle just outside london have a visit around her grounds, have a visit around the castle. There was no real expectation that we were going to meet her. It was like kind of going to the White House and having a private tour. And that that in itself was amazing. That's all we really expected to do. And then the guy who was organizing the tour said, no, there's, there's, there's more to this than even you thought. And uh, 
And there she arrived. She just arrived like someone's grandmother walking into the room. <laughs> <laughs> and actually the bit that gave it away, the bit that gave it away, I've, I've been very like I've met her twice actually, but the bit that gave her away is that the corgi dogs came in first. You know, and it's like a cartoon. You think, this can't be real. These dogs, that means there's one thing. And, and in she walked and she's very knowledgeable. She uh, she absolutely loves the armed forces. She, she just, you know, she lives and breathes the military. It's just been part of her heritage. So she's very knowledgeable. She's very quick-witted. She's just, just a lovely lady, you know, and, and it was to be in the presence of the queen who comes up to about here on me, yeah. you know, so I'm sort of trying not to stoop <laughs> over and be too condescending without bending down to speak to her was, was incredible. You describe that experience much like I think most people describe our political system where, um, it's completely different. It's like the, your redneck cousins across the pond where it's just like a free for all and a brawl, you know, <laughs> just very- she's, she's acutely aware as well. You know, she, she's acutely aware that she's going to have people in that room who, who are complete royalists and, and now we are military. So she's our boss, you know, but yeah. there's, there's people in there who, who might not support the support royalty, but actually what's great is that it doesn't really matter to her. She's such a leveler. And, and I think that's, that's the part that I will always take away from someone like that is watching someone with such poise and, and balance and regardless of her upbringing and, and where she's come from the constitution that she's, she's representing, whether you yeah. think it's a good thing or not. Yeah. I mean, we might be able to use a little poise and dignity over here, but I don't know. <laughs> we'll <laughs> get to it. getting it back. We'll get it to one day. It's just, it's just chaos. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we, we kind of fast forward there. I, I, I skipped over the typhoon. What was the the transition like going from the Harrier to the typhoon? Yeah, I mean, I was treated with um, slightly special as a slightly special case. It was interesting going from the Red Arrows to yes, the no. typhoon. Yeah. A whole bunch of guys that I'd instructed yeah. you know, when I was a fake. Um, there was always you'll know this, there's always inter-aircraft rivalry. So like, yeah, he's this Harrier puke who thinks he knows everything. But actually they had a really good point because the Typhoon's main role here in the UK is is air defense. You know, it's a, it's it's our air dominance fighter. And the air to surface aspect of it, which it has picked up more of recently, um, was actually just a bit part. So coming from the Harrier, which was purely an offensive strike, surface to air mud mover, it was a big change for me. And I'd been out the front line for three years doing display flying. So, you know, I had my work cut out and and there's a bit of professional pride there as well in that I didn't want to be that guy who just pitches up and thinks, A, thinks he knows it all, but also B, lets the side down. So yeah, I, I worked I worked hard to 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 get that conversion done properly and, and that, you know, pay it the attention it required. Cause I was completely new to the air to air game. I'd sat in red air debriefs and what are these guys on about? But actually now being <laughs> front and center and also an experienced guys, there's an expectation that you, you're going to know a lot of this. And yeah, it took, it, it was a great education and absorbed into it very quickly. I've given some of the younger guys advice who are looking to go to pick and you know, put their dream sheet in for fighters. As we were onboarding the F-35 and I don't really know much, but I always think it'd be a lot easier to go from a jet with a fire control radar going from F-16 to an F-35, right? At least you have an understanding of air to air, understanding of radar versus the guys are going from the A-10 to the F-35. That's, a, I mean, they got cast dialed in, but they got to learn how to use a radar. They got to learn how to do air to air, which is a whole nother beast, which sounds like you can attest to. Well, I mean, 
this just goes some way to show my naivety in the air-to-air world when I first started flying the Typhoon. So we do have two seaters of that jet. We've only got a few of them, and we're actually phasing them out because there's no requirement for them now. There's no need for a two-seat jet, right? <laughs> Never. Get out of here. Only ever fly a single seat. <laughs> um, so I'm in the trainer. I think it was my first. Yeah, I think it was my first sort. Well, it, it was my first sortie in the two-seat trainer, and um, it was a, a girl in the back who I knew very well. We, we'd gone a long way back. And um, we're, we're lined up at the threshold, waiting for our takeoff slot. And I remember thinking, there's a really weird banging noise going on here. I was like, I should probably know what that is. But And anyway, before I could even think about it, I opened my mouth and said to Helen, I said, Helen, what, what is that banging noise? She went, you can tell you've never flown with a mechanically scanned radar before. It's like, what's that? <laughs> it's the radar banging away in the nose. You know, it's just a light clump. Yeah, it was but just you can feel it. Yeah. It's like, right, of course it is. What a what an idiot. So. <laughs> oh, that's no, that's that's cool. And I mean, your career, you've done so much, right? And we've spent about an hour and a half going through it, and we could go through it a lot more. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this before we kind of break. Is there anything, if you found, you know, 19-year-old Purdy walking on the street, any advice you would give him? Anything, hey, don't do this or change this? I think the biggest piece of advice I would ever give myself is, is just stay humble. You've got to stay humble. You know, I, I spoke and laughed about um, what goes around comes around. There's a bit of that, but the minute that you pitch up somewhere thinking you know what you're doing is the minute you're going to get caught out. And that's always treated me very well i've always tried to live by those rules very much more so after my accident not not that i was you know particularly bolshy or hot-headed beforehand but just take a moment to sit back and watch what other people are doing don't go in there all guns blazing even if you are the weapons instructor or the, the most experienced flight lead stay humble and it will generally treat you pretty well and that's that's done me pretty well so far yeah, I would say so. Uh, I think you got a few few checks on the resume there that'd be proud of. So, Purdy, thank you uh, for taking the time to do this. Uh, fascinating, and I know people are really going to enjoy hearing your story. Absolute pleasure, Rain. Great to see you again. Likewise. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're looking for additional content, I have a new segment called There I Was, where guests are talking about short little war stories. Purdy has one up there. It lives on Patreon backslash patreon.com backslash the afterburn podcast. And in that episode, he's talking about a night divert he conducted while flying operations over Iraq and Syria. He doesn't go into those countries, let it hang there. But again, guests are uh, joining me for There I Was segments, and that's exclusive for Patreon supporters. So if you can remember the afterburnpodcast.com, you should be able to find your way there. Until next time. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.